You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, I am talking about Kendra James's memoir from this year, Admissions, Surviving an Elite Boarding School. Or maybe it's just Surviving a Boarding School. Either way, I don't know how I came to this book, can't remember, but it was on my Kindle, so I read it this week. And because I couldn't remember, I googled the author's name. And so let me just warn you, if you're at work, I work at a school, I'm a teacher. If you're at work and you google Kendra James's name, make sure that you write Kendra James writer. Okay, that's just a pro tip for you. Uh, I was in class too, because you know, this is the last week of finals, excuse me, last week of school. And uh, kids aren't really doing much. So I was like, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, there's two days of school left. You know, we already did finals, everything. So I was like, oh, okay, do whatever you want. And in class, I Googled the name. And then I was like, oh, okay, writer, Kendra James, writer. So anyway, um, Kendra James, the writer who has been on NPR and uh, has written for several online outlets and has released this memoir this year, which is about going to an elite boarding school. The name of the school is Taft. It's located in Connecticut. And it's about being black and uh, being a nerd and going to an all-white boarding school, not an all-white boarding school, but a majority, majority, majority white boarding school, and what that entails. Now, I thought I would do something a little bit different here than what I usually do, where I go through and talk about what I like and don't like. Because, one, I wrote a little review about the book and put it on my uh, Medium, so you can go to Medium, it's in the show notes, and read about that there. And so I figured what I would do here instead is just go through the reading group guide at the back of the book and answer the questions there, and that'll be the way I talk about the book. So um, we'll see how this little experiment goes. Uh, So if you've read the book, then you can uh, compare your thoughts to mine, and if you didn't read the book, then you can listen to my thoughts and maybe understand what I'm talking about. We'll see. But okay, there's 10 questions. Uh, try to go through these pretty quick. If we give a minute to each question, then we'll be out of here in 10 minutes. You know, don't want to have a 45-minute podcast. Instead of listening to a podcast about the book that's 45 minutes, listen to a 15-minute podcast and then go read the book. Or read the book and listen to a 15-minute podcast. Anyway, away we go. So the first question is, what other boarding school narratives have you read? How did they shape your beliefs about life in these rarefied institutions? After reading about Kendra's experience, how has your perception of these stories and the schools they exalt changed? In order, what other boarding school narratives have I read? None. And I never will again. And that's no offense to the book. I'm just not the... I'm like, I was a public school kid and a free lunch kid. And so I can empathize with the writer and the people who are in uh, in this situation. Doesn't seem like it was easy for sure. But at the same time... It's just not my experience. The only thing I can compare it to is when I did go to university, I mistakenly chose to go to a private university and mostly white in a a very white area. And and yeah, I wish I would have stuck with the public school thing or gone to um, an HBCU as my college coach wanted me to do. 
So, yeah. But anyway, so I won't be reading another one of these. So how did it shape my beliefs about life in these rarefied institutions? Well, that's the point. I never had a good perspective on these places. Excuse me. I never had a good opinion on them. I, I always thought that they sucked. And so after reading this, I, it just confirmed that they sucked. Um, which, you know, I have to say, full disclosure, I am a teacher. I teach at a boarding school, but it's in China. So it's such a different thing that it's really apples and oranges. I'm sure there's some similarities. And then so after reading about Kendra's experience, how has my perception of these stories in the schools of exalt changed? Again, not at all. I never liked the idea of those schools. So, you know, there you go. All right, number two. Uh, Scholars Striving for Success, which is a company that Kendra worked at post-graduating from Taft, uh, scholars striving for success removed children from New York City public schools rather than working to improve the school system itself. Why do you think they opted for that approach? What are other methods that the program could have employed to help a greater number of children? Uh, why did they opt for that approach? You know, it just occurred to me right now. I actually wrote answers out for this, and I was, you know, I'm looking at them as, I, as I'm talking about this. But it just occurred to me now that when I was younger, I was put into uh, the GATE program which is in its own way a similar type of thing where you're segregated away from the rest of the the main school. And yeah, is that better? Like to take all of the kids who are quote-unquote overachievers or bright and put them into the best situations? It's not. And uh, what would be a better thing? I mean, but this is the thing. I don't know what scholars striving for success themselves can do. But clearly what needs to happen in America is that money needs to be funneled into the public school system. You know, where I went to school, it was a nice area. I'm from Redlands. It's right San Bernardino County, the jewel of the Inland Empire. It's a very nice place to grow up. And we didn't have much money, but my parents made sure that we were in a nice school district. Right next door is San Bernardino. My graduating class in Redlands, when I graduated, had a 90% or higher graduation rate. And I remember, I believe it was all the San Bernardino high schools. Uh, Redlands only has two, but San Bernardino had like, I don't know, has like six. They had like a 25% graduation rate. And they didn't have the same resources that Redlands had. And, you know, on down the line. And the reason is because Redlands is a place with money. And the public education gets more money. And the poor area, San Bernardino, doesn't get any money. And so it's really a glib... Uh, suggestion to just say well what needs to happen is more money but like at the end of the day that's the number one thing these public public schools can't offer the same quality of education without the financing they can't offer the same quality of education if the teachers who they want to hire won't go there because they're not going to be offered a competitive salary my buddy teaches in new mexico and what he gets paid is ridiculous Uh, i was going to teach in california when the pandemic started but i ended up staying here and what I would have got paid is similar to the salary I get paid here, but the cost of living would be different. So, you know, that that's the number one thing that needs to happen. Everybody across America, not just scholars striving for success, needs to advocate for getting money into public schools to, one, hire teachers and offer them a legitimate salary that they can live off of, and two... Uh, having the resources in the classroom where teachers can actually effectively get, give their kids a 21st century education. And this needs to happen from the jump. There are so many studies, and my sister is a person who works with this stuff, or works on these things, and I actually did something with her this year about it. But so many studies have proven how early childhood edu- education is the key. This is, this is absolutely 
you know, why Head Start is so important in all of these things. So something like Scholars Striving for Success, you know, Kendra's kind of hard on herself. And I'm calling her Kendra like we're friends. Kendra James. I don't, you know, I don't know anymore if I'm supposed to say Miss or Mrs. She's just got married. I have no idea. So I'm just going to say the full name, okay? Kendra James is really hard on herself for working at this company. I don't think that those boarding schools are great places. But at the same time, it's like the problem starts at the beginning. And by the time a kid gets to high school, if, if, uh, if the kids surrounding them, you know, weren't given a great, introduction into the education system then everybody's going to be at a disadvantage including the kids who are trying to achieve an environment that's not necessarily tailor-made for them to achieve in so it's with all things in america a root problem hey uh we're not going to make it to a <laughs> to a 15-minute podcast let's let's keep going all right number three kendra writes that her parents had to be overachievers just to accomplish what white middle-class american americans might deem normal what were the social and institutional barriers that made the path to success more difficult for BIPOC individuals when they were growing up, and what barriers continue to impact achievement to this day? I will only be answering this question for uh, black individuals, uh, so that would be Kendra's two parents and um, my father. My mother's not black. But, you know, I believe our parents are probably around the same age. Brown versus the Board of Education was passed when my father was born but wasn't implemented at least where he was until the 60s like he went to a segregated elementary school uh then the consequences for someone who wasn't able to uh the consequences for someone who got in trouble in 19 in the 1960s who was black uh were far more severe than for somebody who wasn't black and then the other thing would be that uh what black people could do, what what it was thought of like black people were capable of doing, was extremely limited. Now, a version of all three of those still exists. So this this question says, you know, what barriers continue to impact achievement to this day? All of those. There are still there's still tons of segregation. I think there's been several studies that have pointed out that things are as segregated as ever now, even though things uh, even though schools are force uh, forcefully integrated, and. Um, the concept of, I mean, you, you can look at the statistics, but uh, the number of black kids who are disproportionately suspended from school is off the charts. So that information is available. Harvard has early education uh, studies and uh, Head Start has tons of studies where you can look at that kind of information. So that stuff is still going on. That being said, things are certainly better than when our parents were in school in some ways. And I, I definitely had an easier time than my father had. That doesn't mean that there aren't tons of kids out there who aren't having a harder time. And I, and I really think that that was a big part of this book by uh, Kendra James. You know, she comes from a legacy family. Her parents actually went to university, and I think her father's father did as well. So she's third-generation university. And they grew up pretty middle class and had good money, and she didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So she's not writing a book being like, oh, it was so difficult for me. Her point is, look around at all these other folks, you know, in a way for people like us, it's like there, but uh, but for the grace of God go I, not that I'm religious, but, you know, that kind of thing. And what about all of the other black people who are just forgotten in the system or the ones who are lucky enough to get on some kind of scholarship program and then have to, you know, go to a place like Taft where Kendra James was and then struggle through this bizarre world of like elite boarding school that they know you know nothing about so 
for those black people in particular, not that it's any easier for, it is easier if you are a black person with um, real financial means, but for black people who don't have those financial means, for lower class economically, lower class black people, the shit's tough. That's the point. The shit is tough still. So that persists to this day. All right, number four. I think this one's a little bit more lighthearted. In many ways, Kendra's pleather trench coat was like an armor for her. Did you have a signature clothing item in high school? What did you hope it would say about you? And what did you hope it might hide? All right, so the pleather trench coat is, this is one of those things where, you know, part of the book is about being black and how that's difficult to navigate like a super white space, especially one that's like uh, upper class and bougie and all that. But she wouldn't have had no kind of good time wearing a pleather trench coat anywhere <laughs> anywhere in the world. I can't imagine that would have been good in an all-black space. My God, a pleather trench coat. I remember when I went to junior college and I was wearing um, button-ups because like Kanye had just come out with his thing and Jay-Z was starting to wear button-ups and I just got you know, relentlessly roasted in a pleather trench coat. My, my goodness. The roast would have just been on 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 a hundred so that's a tough one that is a tough one but um for me uh, i was a fat kid Uh, i'm a still you know fattish adult but as a kid i wore an a shirt which you know we called wife beaters back in the day and i really don't think we've come up with a good name for them post that nobody wants to call it that anymore but a shirt is a stupid name and so is tank top for what it is but anyway used to wear one of those all the time to kind of holding the fat like a like a male girdle so that's not really armor per se but i definitely got roasted uh for being fat so you know could uh i can relate i don't think kendra got roasted enough for that pleather trench coat though i'm not sure i don't you know i'm not positive probably though okay number five a few of kendra's bipoc how are you supposed to say this out loud bipoc you know I'm just going to say minority classmate. As a minority, I'm going to feel like I'm going to be okay with saying that. A few of Kendra's minority classmates seem to buy into respectability politics in order to fit in at Taft. How does the strategy for integrating into the school's social scene fall short? What might the lack of engagement of Taft's other uh, minority alumni illuminate about its lasting effects? You know, this was a weird one for me I, with the respectability politics thing. Like, I, okay. I'm not a fan of the term nor the idea. So, like, I never bought into it. Uh, I was allowed to, you know, wear what I wanted to. My father didn't like me listening to rap music because it has cursing in it. But he also didn't like me, like, watching movies with cursing in it. It was more like an ultra-religious thing than a, a uh, respectable politics thing. But so, um, the concept of, like, oh, you're, you should wear your hair a certain way or do this kind of thing or that kind of thing is uh dumb to me and i don't believe in that at the same time if somebody like all right in the book francine is this black character who like you know basically integrates into the tapped social thing full throttle and it to me it doesn't seem like she's doing respectability politics it seems more like she's just a bougie rich person and she happens to be a black bougie rich person you know so if we're doing the whole we are not a monolith, you know, I'm different, you're different, all that kind of thing. It doesn't really seem to me like Francine's like, well, I'm going to pull up my pants and not listen to, like, oh, no, whatever, the yin-yang twin. It seems more like she's like, well, I 
look down on all poor people, black or otherwise. So, I don't know. Uh, Francine sucks, but I don't know about the respectability politics. And then, yeah, I, why don't black people who went to Taft engage with it once they leave? I, I think they probably see it as like a mercenary thing, like it's a means to an end. I went to Taft. And then I got my degree, and then I'm out. And that's the way I feel about my university. I don't. I actually had good experiences there. I like the people I met. Still friends with, you know, some of my best friends are basically all from university. But the place itself, is just a means to an end. So, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know. It's a tricky question, and I didn't go to that kind of boarding school and whatever. But just you know. The characters in the book who weren't, like, hanging out with other black people seemed like they wanted to be more part of, like, a general bougie crowd. And most of the black kids that Kendra seemed to hang out with seemed to be the... Well, first of all, there's only, like, a few of them anyway. But most of them seemed to be from um, the scholarship uh, side of things, which I'm not saying that in some kind of racist way. It's literally, like, uh, her best friend was, and then... Santiago and Sam believe were too. They're not black, but they're minority students. So there's a good number of them who were. But yeah, that's also a thing in the book too, is that people are like assuming that everybody who went to the school was black was. But anyway, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just pointing out that Francine sucks for maybe a different reason. Maybe it's not respectability politics, you know? Or maybe if it is respectability politics, it's like aimed at being poor and not at being black. So there you go. With different dining number six, with different dining tables, hangout spots, and friend groups, campus campus segregation at Taft is evident. What steps do you think the white students could have taken to breaking down these barriers? How could other schools or workplaces implement a simple, similar strategy? You know, this was another interesting one for me. Um, what could the white kids have done? I don't know. Like, if I, in my experience. If I didn't want to hang out with, if I was with a bunch of black people and I didn't want to hang out with some white people, I wouldn't really want them to, like, try to hang out with me or something, you know? That'd probably be, like, kind of weird. So, I don't know what the answer is here. This is, like, a very weird question. I think that the most important, I think that most black people, this is what I wrote down at least, most black people want to be treated equally and viewed as equals. Right? That's really what we want. So, and to be made to feel like we're at home at a place, right? If you go to a place like Taft, doesn't matter if there's 20 black people there, 100 black people there, 5 black people there, uh, 500 black people there, you want to feel at home. You don't want to feel like it's a weird environment. So, they could have done whatever is necessary to make it more welcoming um, and to build an environment that is more inclusive. As far as actually having white students engage them, I don't know, maybe just find better white people like I don't think you need to have some kind of on-campus event or whatever but maybe you need to have like character screening if you got a bunch of white people who are doing fucked up things you shouldn't admit them to your school like after Kendra graduates there's an incident where sorry Kendra James graduates there's an incident where some people write the n-word on these African students whiteboard outside of their room and then tell them to go back to Africa first of all those kids should be expelled they should be put on a blacklist and never, you know, any school that takes them in, it should be like known, like, yeah, you're okay with taking in people who are like this. And, but there should have been a screening beforehand. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that you can necessarily screen a person to find out if they're going to be a racist, but like, 
perhaps, perchance, you know? And if there were, would they actually say no to those kids' money if they came from real money, you know what I mean? So, like, that should be what they do. Better character screening for people. Uh, but once people are there forcing them to hang out and, like, you know, actually want to learn about a different culture, I don't know about that. Now, me personally, I'm all for, you know, I'm half black, I'm half white, I live in China. I'm all for different cultures, but uh, I don't want to be hanging out with people who don't want to hang out with me. So, which is basically the attitude of the book, um, the black kids in the book. <sighs> yeah, I don't know how to make those white kids uh, come around, you know, I, I really don't. Or if it's even desirable. So, that's a tough one. Those are the last two tough. Kendra and Yara bond over a number of TV shows and movies. Yara is Kendra's best friend. Uh, what pop culture touchstones have stuck with you since high school or even longer? How do they resonate with you at the time? And why do you think you remember them to this day? I think most people, the, the biggest one would be music. I think music tastes are really frozen in time. It's very unusual for someone to have a favorite artist that they discovered after the age of 22, I would say. So for me, that would be hip hop then. A few songs just that particularly stick out are Passing Me By by The Far Side, which is probably you know i'm so upset that simp is like such a popular word now because that it was always a great word but now it's just like too many people but yeah you know back in 2002 2001 and my just gigantic simping days uh the far sides passing me by is the simp national anthem you know it's um lift every voice and sing for the simps so that one and then ghetto boys my mind are playing tricks on me we used to you know off of our very first mp3 player down at the ynca putting up 500 shots listening to ghetto boys pass me by <laughs> ghetto boys sorry. far side pass me by ghetto boys my mind playing tricks on me and then flavoring your ear remix i feel like those three which those three songs have nothing to do with each other oh and then fatty girl and uh with ludicrous and, and l cool j and whatnot and then welcome to atlanta remix so I guess what all those have in common would be that they they all are the kind of like posse songs. You got like four or five NCs on it. Oh, which scenario remix of Buster Rhymes. Whereas we are four MCs, five MCs, four in physical presence, one in spiritual form. That song. Great. Anyway, those songs. So songs, music, uh, with hip-hop in particular. That's all I listened to in high school. So there you go. Uh, okay, number eight. Kendra recognizes many of the privileges privileges that gave her a leg up in the college application process. In what way does higher education in the United States work to reinforce existing inequality, not only with race, but with other marginalized groups? Who does the admissions process prioritize? Uh, well, I'll just say, besides the race thing, marginalized groups, poor people. And, you know, the leg up for sure of legacy is a thing. But just having a parent who went to university. If your parent went to university, they made more money on average than the person who didn't go to university. And if they went to university, they knew the deal. Neither of my parents went to university, so we were behind the eight ball there. And so, yeah, being poor, um, for sure. That's the number one biggest one. I mean, race is always going to be the thing in America, but money, 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 money. So if you're poor... The, the escape from the poor mindset and from the poor milieu is so fucking difficult to not have a poverty mindset. It's, and I don't mean that in some kind of like wake up, grind father, I'm addicted to the grind, like that kind of. I mean like 
it's fucking hard to value yourself when you've been poor your whole life. And I was poor in the suburbs. If you take poorness and then you also live in a economically disadvantaged area, let's call it the ghetto since this book is about the early 2000s and that's what we were saying back then. If you live in some place like that, the inner city, a place of urban blight, and you're poor, the to, to overcome, to even have the concept that you can, that you're allowed to, that it's possible or even feasible that you'll get out is insane. Then to figure out how to do it is insane. And so it takes so much to do that. And the higher education system is you know, designed to maybe help you accomplish that goal, possibly, if you can do all of these things and get it just right. And even then, you still, if you're lucky, will come out, on average, $37,000, at least that was the average when I graduated university, so that's probably much higher, let's just say $50,000, on average $50,000 in debt, highly, much, you know, likely much more since you're already poor and you couldn't have paid for stuff anyway. Yeah, man. So that's that's the one. That's the other thing that it reinforces is that the poor stay poor and people who weren't poor get to keep succeeding. Not that it's necessarily easy, but, you know, you got a leg up. So for sure. All right. Number nine. Emma Hunter wrote her article about campus diversity over a decade ago. Yet Kendra recounts numerous similar incidents at Taft in the years since. How might Taft and other white institutions have better addressed bigotry and intolerance within its student body to ensure they weren't perpetuated? Kick these kids the fuck out. Not Emma Hunter, because, you know, writing an article like that, what they should have done with her is she should have been held accountable. And a good editor, you know, should have brought on a person to write a rebuttal piece before that piece was ever ran, you know. But um, I was suspended from school for writing something in an underground newspaper, so I, I'm all for people getting to voice their opinions, however fucking shitty like Emma Hunter's were. But, uh, you know, the, the thing like that, the guys who wrote the N-word on the African, or somebody gifting a watermelon to a black student, or any of this other shit, these kids should be expelled, and it should go on their, uh, you know, I don't wanna, this is an episode of The Simpsons, but their permanent record. But yeah, it should go on their permanent record, like... And there should be a permanent record for these kinds of things. I, I don't actually think that's a thing, but there should be. So that would be the thing, you know, if you want to have a real inclusion on your campuses and stuff, you need to have real, what do you call it, consequences for these people who do this shit. And as the book points out, and as any statistic will show you, black kids and uh, other minority kids, but black kids especially, are disproportionately and harshly punished for school infractions and uh those school infractions aren't you know gifting fucking whatever the equivalent of a watermelon is to a white kid um so yeah they should be expelled that should be what it is but these systems run on money so another way of saying this would be for these schools to not be 100 percent powered by money you know these for-profit uh, institutions. I assume Taft is for profit. You know, I don't actually know how the structure of these things work. You know, it's all confusing. They have a huge endowment at the very least. Number 10. Kendra notes that teachers at the Hartman School created curriculums that didn't center whiteness. Thinking back on your own educational experience, how did your teachers and classes center dominant perspectives and stories? What historical moments or cultural narratives did you leave the American educational system with? A skewed perspective about, is there anything you wished you learned sooner? 
uh, first of all, I don't remember this part about the Hartman School in the book. And I, I, yeah, I don't remember this. But um, one of the things I was struck by in the book was that in the first year at Taft, that she, her English teacher read slave narratives. That's amazing. We had none of that. So I, you know, I was talking to my friend Rob about this about a year back. And it was as the critical race theory debate was just kicking off. And I was saying to him, you know, it's so funny how people are concerned about, like, you know, books like Howard Zinn's America and stuff. By the time you get to Howard Zinn's America, if you take AP U.S. History, at least when I was a student, if you took AP U.S. History, you got to Howard Zinn's America. Well, it's a bit fucking late for Howard Zinn's America after 16 years of indoctrination. Now, it doesn't completely fall on deaf ears, and some kids get it. My Howard Zinn's America was Ronald Takaki's, um, I can't remember the name of the book. That's that's a good sign. But I got to it in junior college. But getting to these books so late, you've already spent 16 years and every day of every year of your life, you know, growing up, you're indoctrinated with the idea of America. You're watching NFL games with the national anthem and the flags and the troops and basketball games with the national anthem and the flags and baseball games with the national anthem and you turn on the tv and you're watching commercials for trucks with the flag and you're watching commercials for beer with a flag every day you're indoctrinated by this and then people are scared that somehow you're going to turn and you're indoctrinated on days where there's a holiday for the for the president or there's a holiday for martin luther king who's great but who's been sanded down by you know, the, the the person that the mainstream America wants him to be. And then they're worried that at 16, after all of these days and weeks and years of indoctrination, that you're somehow going to be brainwashed to being a liberal by reading one book. So, in short, what, what was my skewed perspective leaving the Americans? Everything. Everything was skewed. The entire perspective is skewed. It is a 100% skewed perspective, as everybody's is, though. That's the other thing about this, too. You know, all of these countries are telling their cultural uh, story to, to make sure that they have a citizenry that believes in their national myths. Like, that's not unique to America. It's just that America is the most militaristic state on the planet. So, like, of course it hits a little bit different to use the parlance of our times. So, you know, it's so funny because I was thinking, like, where did I learn about, like, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and, you know, like, the real Martin Luther King and all this stuff? And my dad wasn't him. He's not that kind of, not that kind of black dude. And my sisters a little bit, for sure, are, and they're older than me, so that helps. But I, I would say it was hip-hop, you know? I've talked about this before, but, like, hip-hop raised me, and, like, all of that public enemy and tribe and, you know, Tupac and, like, Biggie and even, like, shit that's even less conscious than that or shit that's more conscious, you know, you obviously have Dead Prez or something like that where it's, like, okay, for sure, but, like, even just, like, mainstream stuff like Jay-Z, they, there was always lines in there, Nas, you know, Nas, I remember the first time I heard the name Patrice Lumumba was in a Nas song, so... I wish I would have learned about all of that stuff sooner, you know? I wish I would have learned about the first president of Tanzania sooner. I, I wish I learned about all of this stuff. Because even the black history stuff that, you know, you w wish you would have learned about sooner in America, there's tons of that, right? But, you know, George Washington Carver and Muhammad Ali were two people I read about very early on and was, like, really into. But what about, like, 
anybody from the continent, you know, anybody from the continent besides Nelson Mandela, you know, just any kind of perspective outside of like America would have been nice. And again, that should be broadly applied to the world at large, including like Europe, you know, like Europe was always, whenever you meet a European, it's always like, oh, well, we know all about uh, these different countries. Yeah, it's all about these different European countries, you know, like I'm talking about like, what about the perspective of different African countries and, you know, different South American countries and things like that, um, completely non-Western perspectives. That would have been cool and interesting uh, and like necessary. But short of that, would have been nice to read some slave narratives. You know what I mean? That would have been cool. And you know, I'm not saying like just because that was the one thing that Taft got right that that's like somehow, you know, a thing or whatever. That, that just that just struck me as so odd. Like this school that has a lot of things completely wrong, you know, reading slave narratives. Weird. Very weird. Feels very white liberal. All right. We failed miserably at 15 minutes. We didn't even get close. Like double that. But still, 30 minutes. Not a bad podcast. Um... Yeah, please, in the show notes, check out the review of the book. Much more of a straightforward review. The music is by The Keep Running. The intro music, the outro music, they're both fantastic. It's by The Keep Running. The link is in the show notes. Uh, if you want to read other things I wrote, there's a link in the show notes. Please subscribe to this thing on SoundCloud, Spotify. Well, we got Pocket Cast. That's the one I use. Uh, next week, the school is out for summer. So let's say next week going to come with a new podcast uh maybe some more non-fiction you know but something that's not a memoir uh my apologies for the thing at the top about not wanting to read a memoir about boarding school i should have been more clear i don't want to read another memoir like period i just don't like memoirs uh but i so it was like the fact that i even bought this one uh you know was like uh, i was intrigued by it because in general i do not read them i like i don't have any on my shelves at all or in my kindle that was the only one i had so yeah, so it won't be a memoir, and it will probably not be a detective novel, but you never do know, do you? Alright, so anyway, until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. And this time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>